0: pause with me and pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege we have of being together today in your name to study your word together. God, we thank you for the treasure that is your word. We thank you for the enlightening that you bring to it by your spirit. And we ask that you would teach us this morning so that we would know and give us ears to hear and hearts that are receptive. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. The setting of the song that Curtis sang earlier, Is He Worthy? is Revelation chapter 5. There's an angel weeping because they looked around and saw no one worthy to open the scroll. And he asks the question, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? Soon that question is answered when one appears. Behold, weep no more. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll And it's seven seals. A picture of the Lord Jesus as a lion from the tribe of Judah. We looked last week as we began our study of Amos about this roar of judgment coming from the Lord. And we find that God not only roars in victory, but he also roars in judgment. Some of you may know by now that I I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, we are introduced to the lion Aslan, who is a picture of of Christ, and we know that at times he roars in victory, and we have the scene, which is better in the book than it is in the movie, when he roars at the white witch, because in the movie it's just lame, because she just kind of sits down like, oh, I guess he put me in my place, but basically in the book um, she turns tail and and runs um, in fear of the lion that judges, and this morning we look at the roar of judgment centered around the main idea that God holds all men accountable for their actions. And what we're going to see is that Amos had a very purposeful plan in pointing out the transgressions of six surrounding nations before he turns toward God's people. And so I just want to set the stage by talking first of all about his purposeful plan. Amos had a plan in his message. And the first thing he wanted to make very clear was that the words that Amos spoke were not his own words. They were God's. They were God's words, not his. It was the roar of the Lord, not a rant of an angry man fed up with society named Amos. Each judgment begins with the words, thus says the Lord. Amos saw with his eyes the atrocities that were going on. God spoke to Amos And Amos spoke God's words, and we saw last week in verse 1 that the Lord roared from Jerusalem. His words are unmistakable, they're authoritative, they're purposeful, they're powerful. We know that God raised up men called prophets throughout history. They were charged to speak His word. They were charged to warn His people, to guide them into doing what is right. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 18 God speaking I will raise up for them a prophet like you from their brothers and I will do this I will put my words in their mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command so they're God's spokespersons literally Amos picks up on this in chapter 3 which we'll look at saying that God reveals does nothing without revealing it first to his servant the prophet's And because God has spoken or roared, he will not fear the Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So these are men given a message from God whose bones are burning from the inside. Their voices can do nothing else but speak the truth of what God has for them. And so Amos heard the Lord. He had a calling to proclaim his word. He willingly accepts it and he steps forth boldly to declare a message not from himself but from the Lord. And in the pattern we see, he delivers it first to the nations that surround Israel, and then finally to Judah, their brother, nation, sister, nation, and then finally to Israel. And what you see is this picture of judgment that circles around Israel. It's really a brilliant strategy and a structure. Rather than open up with just an open rebuke and a reprimand of the nation of Israel, he gains the attention of his listeners building them toward a climactic point in time where he points his finger not at the people around them but at Israel and their actions. So he begins by talking to these six nations, these neighbors. He points out their sin, he draws out attention to the the certain nature of their judgment. And you could almost see if you were there looking and watching the, the Israelites You know, enjoying hearing about how God was going to do business with their enemies. He was going to take care of them. All these people that had troubled Israel throughout the years were now going to get their due. And to hear that their enemies were going to suffer great demise would be joyful news. They were finally getting what was coming. This anticipation of victory over these enemies would build confidence and pride in them. They were very interested to hear what Amos had to say. You could almost imagine them leaning in with their ears, maybe taking a few notes, nodding along with the charges. Yeah, I can see that. Man, God, it's great. That you're really going to get them. And they agree with the sentence. Man, yes, that's exactly what they deserve. And as Amos geographically crisscrosses the nation of Israel from top to bottom, left to right, he carefully weaves this web of judgment to the point where Israel finds itself inescapably in the sinner, the bullseye. You see, they'd already agreed with Amos that they, the nations around were deserving of judgment. And so when Amos turns toward them and says, how much more are you accountable for your actions? Because you have a relationship with God. You have the revelation from the prophets and from his word. And so carefully, Amos lays the groundwork for this message to finally tell the people, That it wouldn't just be the surrounding nations, but God's people would be judged as well. It's a carefully crafted net. If you look at a map of the region, we'll touch on some of it in a a minute, you'll see how he literally goes north to south, east to west, surrounding the nation. Now the next pattern I want to show you that's important is, you'll see in your verses over and over again, this pattern for three transgressions and for four. And the focus is on the fourth transgression. There's a series of these oracles or messages, words delivered from God through a man. They were authoritative and they were certain. And each of these are very similar around the same pattern. So if you look at verses 3 through 5, we can get the pattern for the whole of the chapter. Thus says the Lord, there's the beginning, for three transgressions of Damascus, name the nation, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. God always mentions in these verses that it's irrevocable punishment. Because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. And then here's the judgment. So I will send fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus, cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, and the peoples of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Fire will come. Strongholds will be destroyed. Leaders will be brought down. People will be carried away. Each beginning with the words, Thus says the Lord. God's words, not Hamas'. Three transgressions and then for four. He's telling them there's more than enough evidence around to convict the surrounding nations. Three sins would represent the fullness or completeness of an action. Four would represent an overflow. So three would be terrible, but four would be almost intolerable. Now, we don't have a record of the three sins, but we do have the fourth because that's where the emphasis lies. But the idea is that the sin has piled up to the point that God says no more. They've crossed the line. They're at the tipping point. And it shows us that God is indeed patient to a point but eventually his patience will run out and the judgment comes I will send fire the gates are destroyed the city is leveled. the kings are defeated the people are carried off all the things they put their trust in all the things that they held as their security would be stripped away and they would be left vulnerable for three and for four and that fourth one was the tipping point you see, the second thing there is because these transgressions were not just centralized. They were all around. Amos uses that word transgressions, which means to be in revolt or rebellion. It's the idea of breaking away from what's the norm. It's a violation by someone that knows better, but willingly does it anyway. Willful disobedience to a known standard. All men Are accountable to God. Because if you notice in all of this, when Amos speaks to all of these pagan nations, he doesn't attack their religion. He doesn't say, You're going to be judged because you don't judge, you don't worship the one true God. No, he says, I'm executing judgment on you because of the way you treat the people around you. The sins they committed were man against another man, they were violations of human rights, things that are both fundamental and universal. There were heinous crimes committed against men, women, and children, all created in God's image. And they should have known better. Now, granted, these nations had no special revelation from from God. They had no scripture. They had no prophets. They had no one speaking the voice of God, but however, they were still under God's judgment. And as one man pointed out, No human can ever escape the obligation of being human. Paul reminds us of this in the New Testament, the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 14, when it says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Now, I don't want your minds to go and think, well, that just means because they didn't have a law, they made up their own law. No, it means that even though they didn't have God's law, they were still held accountable because by the nature of their actions, they were a law to themselves. Look at verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, where their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according... To my Gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The conscience that God places in the life of every man and woman is able to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong. A law to themselves and men are no excuse. Scottish theologian J F. McFadden summarized the era when he said the world around Israel was a cruel world which targeted remorselessly upon the fundamental sanctities of life and liberty. And if these nations were guilty, how much more guilty would God's people be? So let's look briefly at these nations. Just kind of a snapshot view of the, the nations. The first is Syria. It's to the north and east of Israel. It's identified not by name, but by its capital, Damascus, the great city of Syria. It's northeast of Israel. And what was the charge against them? They have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Now, whether that's either figurative or literal, it still points to the fact that there was gross Cruelty. The idea that they would run over their captives with a thresher, which was a heavy sled that would either have spikes underneath of heavy, of flint or metal. It was something that, the, that pulled by oxen or, or horses they would use to pull over grain to release the seeds from the stalks. And the charge that they would run those over the backs of people. Harsh, cruel. It's one of those atrocities of war like we, we read about in history that we could think unthinkable but it showed the willingness that they had to do whatever they needed to extract what they wanted from the people. What was their punishment? Destruction from the flames of war. Gates would be broken. They'd be cut off from the place of safety and carried away as slaves. Now, we won't focus on the the punishment of each nation because it's very similar. You can read about the specifics and, and, and dissect that later. But for gross cruelty... And then he turns to the south and the west of Israel, to a nation, to the region of Gaza, the strongest city in the five, of the five ruling cities of this loosely gathered together kingdom of the Philistines. It's the area south and, and west of Israel where still much fighting and conflict is today, the Gaza Strip. So it's these coastal people that lived along an easy road for travel and their charge, they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Now carried into exile kind of softens that a little bit. But let me just try to paint the picture. They would raid peaceful villages. They would capture men, women, and children and sell them to Edom. Selling people for profit, trafficking in human lives. Tyre, very similar, moving up the coast, north and west of Jerusalem, the capital of the Phoenicians, coastal coastal city in the northwest, prosperous region. There were merchants, artisans, sailors. It's also the home of the king of Tyre and his daughter, the wicked queen, Jezebel. They delivered up a whole people to Edom, And did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So just like the Philistines, they were involved in in trafficking or, or slavery. But in addition, they didn't keep their word. They didn't honor their treatment, their treaties that they had made. So they were involved in this sale of people for profit. According to the United Nations definition, the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring or receipt of persons by improper means such as force, abduction, fraud, or coercion for an improper purpose, including forced labor or sexual exploitation. Values profit more than people, treats people as a commodity available for a price. And today, modern day slavery, conservative amounts, there are 30 million people worldwide, that are trafficked or held against their will in some capacity. In the United States alone, there is an excess of 300,000 children estimated to be at risk in sex trafficking. It makes your eyes tear. It makes you kind of breathe a little uneasily. Put the lump in your throat, and it should. And it makes you want to say, "What? What can I do? Pray, educate yourself, educate other people, be aware, advocate, speak up for those that can't speak for themselves." Today is not much different than it was back then, is it? From there he travels south and east to Edom. Kingdom of these nomadic people south of the Dead Sea. Traditionally they're recognized as descendants of, of Esau, which would logically place them in a not so great relationship with the people of Jerusalem, people of Judah and Israel. And their charge, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, And his anger tore perpetually and kept his wrath forever. Much like their ancestor, they harbored hatred. They cherished wrath. They brooded over circumstances and waited for revenge. It's a caution to me and a caution to you that when we allow resentment and anger to to smolder, to still remain, and we refuse to, to resist that and repent from it, that eventually a wind will blow, it'll be fanned into flame, and it can easily ignite into a rage or a violence that we never intended, we never thought per we never thought possible, and either with words or deeds we lash out against those around us. Uncontrolled anger. Then he points toward Ammon, west of Israel, between Edom and Moab. Traditionally, these are the descendants of Lot, included the Moabites. They were nomadic people. They lived there east of the Jordan River. And they're in charge. Verse 13, chapter 1. They have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead. That they might enlarge their border. Motivated by greed, filled with cruelty, both women and unborn children or victims, murder, infanticide, barbarian activity, cruelty, unbounded selfishness, vicious attacks on the defenseless. All human life begins at conception is precious in God's sight. If your mind's not connecting this to the recent court decisions in New York, Virginia, state of our country, um, mine is. And while I don't have time to expand this subject. At length, let me just say a few things. First of all, regardless of what you read or what you think, it's not simply a woman's choice or a woman's problem. Men, and by men I don't mean all men, I mean men, the male populace of this earth must answer for their irresponsible, adulterous, and selfish actions. One writer, probably a little more liberal than I would generally read on a normal basis, wrote, men cause 100% of unwanted pregnancies. can see a direct connection between the unadulterated, no-holds-barred, Sexuality of our culture that place girls, women in precarious positions because of the actions of men will give an answer. Politicians will have to give an answer for their continued inability and unwillingness to end abortion. For the untold dollars that line their pockets, that fund their campaigns. And Christians, we have a responsibility. Proverbs thirty-one, eight: we have a responsibility to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. We have an obligation to offer gospel hope, Christ-like love, compassionate care and guidance, rather than judgment and gossip. Every man, every person is made in God's image. Every life is sacred. As Horton the Elephant said, a person's a person, no matter how small. He moves from there to Moab, south of Ammon and east of Judah. This fertile table of land east of the Dead Sea, their descendants of Lot as well, their charge, he burned to lime the bones of the king of Eden. One commentator pointed out that in these sins, they not only attack the beginnings of life, but they also attack the ends of life. What were they guilty of? They were guilty of disrespect and defilement of the grave of a king of Eden. It would be irreverent to burn the body of any person, much less a king. It showed an extreme lack of respect for the dead it reminded me it just it still fires me up gets me mad when you see in the paper that some bonehead goes and knocks over a bunch of gravestones in a cemetery you know it just and I think why because you're not very smart and you don't have enough to do but you know and I know that their their bodies aren't there that they're you know that they're gone to to heaven if they trust in in Christ but still just that lack of respect for the dead. The beginning and the end of life. Each one of these nations was guilty of what we would describe as inexcusable crimes. There was more than enough evidence to convict them. I'm sure God could have gone on at length through Amos to list more and more And the truth was that God's judgment would soon roar down upon each of them and they would be brought low by the war powers that would come, first the Assyrians and later powers, and they would be brought low and destroyed. And if God judged these surrounding nations for violations of moral standards that God places on every man, how in the world could Israel escape? They were not only responsible to the same moral law, But they also had the privilege of a relationship with God and his revelation. And as Alec Moynier points out, sin is the hinge upon which destiny turns. Affecting a downfall which good policies could never in themselves avert. You may want to write that down. And mail that to your congressman. Repenting from our sinfulness and turning to God will be the ultimate decision maker in the course of this nation. It won't be policies. It's people and their relationship with God. So third... And and if you're trying to follow this outline, I apologize for that because we're not going to cover it all today. But third, just jump down to number four if you're looking at your bulletin. Um, there's some timeless truths I want to close with. And the first one um, you're not going to see listed there, but it's a reminder of what we covered at the beginning. God holds all men accountable for their actions. It should motivate us to fall at the knees of God and at the the feet of God and ask for his grace and mercy it should motivate us to go and tell the people around us the good news of the gospel but the truth is all men are accountable no one will escape judgment the second one I think there are some blanks to fill in God identifies and condemns all human sin Hebrews 4.13 no creature is hidden from his sight God's sight but all are naked and exposed to him in the eyes of him to whom we must give account, Romans 14:12, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. God sees all and we'll give an account to the one who sees all. We're without excuse. We looked at that earlier. Romans 6:23 reminds us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have the assurance that we must give account for our actions. God clearly points out those things he calls sin and he reminds us that there is hope of eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ. But the next thing I want you to notice and we're, we're about done is that you know sin's not limited to those outside the people of God. Christians are sinners. The world around us are sinners. So we have a personal obligation to pay attention to the sin in our own lives. To use the illustration of jesus we have a responsibility to go log looking before we try to find specs in other people and i don't know about you but there's enough sin in my life that i've got enough to work on just me i don't have enough time to focus on everybody else's problems and then thirdly people are not to be treated as things People are not to be treated as things created in God's image, valuable and cherished, have the right and the privilege to live a life. And no matter where you are on this globe, using other people for profit, pleasure, political gain or power is opposed by God and is against the truth of the Bible. So what do we do with this? Our responsibility is is clear. We can't simply ignore God and expect Him to be with us. We can't simply ignore other people around us and think God is okay with that. And the day that I live in, the day that you live in, we have been given as God's people a great responsibility. We address instead of ignore the atrocities that are committed today, daily around the world. Through proclaiming the truth, what does God say? What does He offer? Forgiveness and salvation, and then showing God's love, which means we're spraying, we're spreading the message of hope, not spraying bullets of hatred aimlessly into the crowd. There's more we could say, and we'll say it next week as we look at God turning His sights toward Judah and Israel, God's people, those that had relationship and revelation and were given an even higher level of responsibility. Will you join me in praying? Father, we are grateful for your goodness and your mercy. And God, honestly, to to read these catalogs of things that we would consider to be heavy topics, if we're not careful, it's easy to lose sight of the hope that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ. But God, I do... Thank you that in the darkness of the day that there is one who brings light into the darkness. And he is the one who promises and will one day make all things new. Lord, help these images to not quickly pass from our minds. Because I think sometimes our consciences are seared. Violence is is commonplace and we just say, oh yeah, there was another one. Atrocities go around and we, we just seem to ignore. When we look at the the seriousness of, of human trafficking. We think, well, no, that's, that's not here, but, but it is, and it's true, and it's not going away. When we look at the vicious attack on life that has been ongoing for, for decades, help us to not grow weary. Help us to speak truth and to show love, to accept responsibility, but also to accept the healing and forgiveness that you offer when we repent. And God, you're so good to do that. I help us to see that the same things that shade our world shade our churches. And that if it were not for your presence in our lives, if it were not for your grace, God, Restraining us, there's no telling where we would end up. Lord, turn our hearts toward you. Speak to us with your voice. If we need to hear a voice, a word of warning, Lord, I don't hold back. We don't ask you to hold back, but to warn us, to wake us up. Lord, if it's a word of comfort, we may receive it with joy. If it's a word of encouragement, that we would receive that with. A heart of, of gladness. if It's a word of challenge or exhortation that we would receive it with the willingness to step up and say, yes, God, whatever you call me to do. God, this morning, we're just asking you to speak to us. And we're not smart enough to be able to tell you how to do it, so we're leaving it up to you. God, speak to us, your people. Show us how to respond. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.